This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Welcome to our show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Coming up later this hour, community co-host Nick Burns in conversation with Columbia University alumnus Jeff Schneider about his debut novel, The Serpent Papers. It came out earlier this month, and it's a work of historical fiction. Released just in time to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the April 1972 marches, building takeover riots at Columbia University that suspended classes after the university summoned the police to remove the protesting students. The Serpent Papers is the first book of any kind written about the protests and is based on the real-life experiences of a participant and witness to the events of the era. We'll talk more current events with Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. Of course, he was also in the Israel Defense Forces for 20 years. I Zoomed with him earlier today as he prepares to return from Jerusalem to Utah to get his assessment of where we are today with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, the Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, made a special trip to Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin, and he traveled on the Sabbath. Why that's significant? Coming up in my conversation with Amos. We're going to start with current events in Utah, and that would be the legislative session that wrapped up on Friday. Last night on the show, we had Sue Robbins from the Transgender Advisory Council of Equality Utah join us to give us an update on bills impacting transgender youth in particular. Tonight, though, a conversation that I recorded earlier this afternoon with Troy Williams, Executive Director of Equality Utah. Their annual Power to the Pack brunch is coming up on Saturday. But to get us into the conversation, I'd like to share this with you from the latest Equality Utah newsletter titled The Plot to Ban Transgender Athletes in Utah. This dropped yesterday in my mailbox, and it starts... The last few hours of the 2022 legislative session played out like a movie, with a third act plot twist, a shock reveal, and a last second deus ex machina to save the day. So I asked him how tense, how strange those final hours of the last day of the legislative session were last Friday. It was so unusual and so shocking and unexpected. We were completely blindsided. You know, we had tried to to find a path forward, a, a, a kind of a compromise solution to the contentious issue of transgender youth participating in sports. And at the last minute, the last three hours of the session, an amendment to the, the bill was introduced, which was a total ban. And uh, that was completely unexpected. And it was interesting how it played out because this ban seemed to be very well prepared given its last minute surprise. Right. Well, they'd had, had a ban prepared last year that um, they tried to run and it didn't, didn't work then. Um, and so, yeah, so the ban was ready to go. They had it. Um, and as the vote count, you know, it, it takes um, two thirds majority uh, to override a governor veto. And as the vote count started uh, first in the Senate and then in the House, um, there was 19 Republicans that joined the 23 Democrats. And at that point, we knew it was, it, it, that the, the veto uh, would stand. Um, so, so I went from, I knew that Governor Cox, I mean, he has a big heart for LGBTQ youth. And I knew that he wouldn't uh, let this ban move forward without a veto. What did you think about Stuart Adams, I believe, and his comments that he thought, you know, the governor shouldn't veto this bill because at least you get the commission then. But as we talked with Sue Robbins from the Transgender Advisory Council for Equality Utah on last night's show, work had stopped on, you know, compromising on that that committee that would review yeah. transgender athletes. Yeah, well, you know. The committee wasn't um, a novel idea. Um, states like Maine have done it. Uh, Wyoming does it to various degrees. And we had we were open to the conversation around the idea. But as we started working on it, um, they wanted all kinds of obscene things that we weren't willing to support. Measuring of, of transgender bodies for wingspan, for hip to knee ratio. I'm like, we're like, no, children are not livestock. We're not going to treat them as such. We're not going to put them 
through a humiliating process to scrutinize their bodies. And so we couldn't find common ground on that, uh, on that language. And, um, and then, then uh, they responded with a, with a total ban. All right, Troy, we've seen this going on in other states. Texas extreme and uh, families with transgender children being investigated under orders of the governor to their department of essentially human services. So I don't think you get to go sit on a beach after this legislative session and try and recoup. (laughs) It's back into the fray. We're still working. I'm very alarmed. People should be paying attention to what's happening across the country. In, in Idaho, a bill advanced to actually criminalize health care for transgender children. In Florida, uh, this, this, this infamous don't say gay bill uh, it, it passed both chambers and is headed to Governor DeSantis's uh, desk. There, have been, there has been an all-out uh, assault on transgender youth across the country. Uh, Bans on trans sports advancing also, I believe, in in Iowa this session. So um, the extreme um, right wing have really mobilized uh, to try to erase transgender youth and LGBTQ youth as well. Um, We should all be very alarmed by this trend. Well, then let's remind folks why Equality Utah exists in the first place, and that's to really work on these policy issues behind the scenes. And in fact, you've got your um, Power to the Pack brunch coming up this weekend. That's right. Uh, We're excited to welcome Shannon Minter. He is one of the leading transgender attorneys in the country. He has actually led the effort um, successfully to ban conversion therapy in 20 states. He was instrumental in helping us ban conversion therapy here in Utah in 2020. And he's been working with us on so many pieces of legislation. And so we wanted everyone to get to know him. Uh, And uh, so we'll be celebrating with him on Saturday morning. And you have a, fe- a special guest as well, musical guest. That's right. We've got Mac. I don't know if you know Mac, but um, she's this phenomenal vocalist and very excited to have uh, her celebrating with us as well. So again, I wanted folks just to understand the role of Equality Utah in our community because there are folks in the streets and there's folks in the halls of power, different roles to play. And over the course of your career as an activist, you've moved from one to the other and sometimes yeah. you get criticized for it. So remind <laughs> folks about the role of Equality Utah and organizations like yours. Well, yeah, I mean, every social movement needs activists and agitators, but then also advocates, people who work behind the scenes. Um, and you kind of need both of them, really. Um, when I was younger and when I was working at KRCL Radio, I was very much an activist and an agitator. Um, but now you need people to go in and have meetings with the governor and with with power, and you need to sort of work with them. And thanks to that advocacy over the years, we've built allies on the Capitol. I mean, I, I don't, it is not insignificant that 19 Republicans voted against the total ban. Um, because we've been working to build relationships with them. It's not a coincidence that the gov- Governor Cox is going to veto this bill. Uh, we've been working with him for years now. Uh, so you have to be able to build those alliances and those relationships. And, you know, I, I, I have found being on both sides of, of the spectrum, of, of the, the advocacy spectrum, um, that you need both. And, um, yeah. Well, Governor Cox wrote on his social media at the close of legislative session last Friday that, quote, we care deeply about Utah's female athletes and our LGBTQ plus community. To those hurting tonight, it's going to be okay. We're going to help you get through this. Please reach out if you need help. Safe UT is a free uh, app and provides immediate and confidential counseling. I'm grateful he said that. And the same time, I'm distressed that in his statement, he had to say, basically, Please don't harm yourself. We're going to keep working on this. So what is your advice to folks coming out of this session to what needs to be done next and how they can get involved? Well, it's really important, you know, that sometimes if you lose a battle, it doesn't mean that you ultimately lose the war. Uh, I, I, I remember that how we felt when Proposition 8 was passed in California, the same day that, that Barack Obama was elected president, the first African-American in the country. And it seemed like a stinging defeat that California, of all states, the most progressive state in the country, would ban marriage equality. But because of that ban, um, it 
caused us to organize like we never had before. And within just a few short years, marriage equality was the law of the land in all 50 states. Every time the Utah legislature tries to ban uh, something, uh, whether it was gay straight alliances in the 90s or actually gay marriage in the aughts, every time they do that, it actually accelerates bringing that thing into reality. So the fact that they have worked to ban transgender athletes tells me that down the road, we're going to get to a place where all young people who can who want to participate in sports are going to be able to do so. So I always see the, these little um, these you know losing doesn't mean that 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 we are actually defeated. It means it gives us an opportunity to rethink, to reorganize, and and to spring back in action. Well, where can folks find out more about joining you in that fight or the uh, Power Pack brunch coming up on Saturday? Yes. Join us at equalityutah.org. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and LinkedIn. Troy Williams of Equality Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the nonprofit and more details on their Power to the Pack Pack Brunch, featuring Shannon Minter, legal director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, as well as special musical guest Mac. And we're still waiting for Governor Cox to make good on his promise to veto the legislation passed last Friday at the last minute that would ban transgender student-athletes from competing in girls' sports. You're listening to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. And now I want to pivot to the situation in Ukraine. Earlier today, I hopped on Zoom with Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. He is currently with his family where they live in Israel on spring break. We'll be returning to Utah in just a matter of days. But I wanted his read on what's happening in Ukraine, the developments earlier today about what looks to be an attack on a maternity ward or a children's hospital, not to mention the significance of Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett traveling to Russia to meet with Putin on the Jewish Sabbath. Here's my conversation with Professor Giora. Amos, as we record this on Wednesday morning, Utah time, we're seeing the reports coming through about the bombing of a maternity ward, a children's hospital in Mariupol in Ukraine by Russia. And so I wanted to check in with you and find out, given your legal expertise, your take on this as uh, an act by Russia. So three thoughts. One, with all due respect to pictures and reports, one has to be in the, in the fog of war to be, and you know this better than me, you're a journalist, to be extremely careful, cautious, before jumping to conclusions about what did or did not happen. That's that's the fact. The reporting is still very early at this point. That's right, that's right. And as you know, I served for 20 years in, in the Israel Defense Forces, and I can't even count the number of times that something was alleged. And the real challenge when something is alleged is to take a deep breath and not rush to judgment, but to verify and ascertain. If indeed it turns out to be that what we are hearing and seeing is correct, then it's a, it's a terrible tragedy. No doubt, stop. But then in putting on you know, the legal hat, the reality of war is that terrible things happen. Mistakes are made. International law tolerates collateral damage, the killing of innocent people. And international law does not articulate a specific number of, of innocent people. There's, it's not a numerical analysis. The imposition or the burden, of, according to international law, is on the nation state to minimize the loss of innocent life. And you and I could talk forever about what the word minimize means. The third scenario, which is one would like to think the unimaginable in any complicated chess game, because this is a, it's a chess game here, is that this was done deliberately. And that's a scenario that so boggles the mind that um, I, I, I can't perceive that, but the, hang on, never say never. So I think if correct, then fog of war, terrible, you know, it's happened before. Uh, the United States of America has made targeting mistakes and has bombed uh, where it didn't intend to bomb. 
sometimes comes forward and acknowledge it, sometimes doesn't come forward and acknowledges it. Sometimes it takes a long time before the United States of America acknowledges. And anybody who's been involved in targeting decisions knows that, that you know, mistakes are made. That's a tragic reality of war that in no way under any condition minimizes, if true, the terror of people who, as I understand it, are, you know, stuck under the bill, under the remnants of the roof of this building. That is horrible. If it's scenario number two, how Vladimir Putin addresses this will be very interesting to watch. Um, you know, in the old days, in the heyday of the Soviet Union, it would never acknowledge mistakes. But there is a, again, this is the reality of contemporary warfare, social media. And social media and you, everything goes viral within seconds, even to Russia and how, and obviously to the world. I mean, I just was, you know, skimming through the BBC, it's everywhere. How this will be positioned, if indeed it were a mistake, is the kind of challenge that no Russian leader has, to the best of my recollection, has faced before. Mistakes have been done, but not in the age where everything, you know, viral. And that's a game changer. And I don't know how nimble and deft Putin is. I really have no idea. Yeah, I'm reading the headlines out of media in Israel about your Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's visit to Moscow. One headline, two Russia experts fear Putin played Bennett by inviting him to Moscow. One saying Zelensky, Zelensky thanks Bennett for mediation efforts. And, and they ping pong back and forth. What's the perspective in Israel on uh, Bennett's visit and intercession? So first of all, when it happened, when the story broke on, was released on Saturday, uh, it's important to note that Bennett, as an Orthodox Jew, violated the sanctity of the, of the Sabbath. That's extraordinary. There is a principle in Judaism which says that um, for the sake of saving a life, violating the Sabbath is, is legitimate. And that's exactly the way Bennett um, framed this. The fact that the Israeli cabinet minister who flew with him, Zev Elkin, is also an Orthodox Jew, is, is remarkable. Elkin's advantage is that he's a, he moved to Israel, made Aliyah, what we call Aliyah, made, moved from um, the Soviet Union or Russia to um, Israel. He speaks Russian and he has many hours with Putin because he has served as a translator for previous prime ministers. So there are those who are suggesting that Putin played Bennett. I think that if prime minister Bennett has some kind of a relationship with both Zelensky and Putin, then it's the exact right thing to do is to go meet with Putin and go talk to Zelensky and then go to Russia and, and meet with Chancellor um, uh, Scholz. It seems to be that the only Western leader who's able to talk to Zelensky and Putin is the Israeli Prime Minister Bennett. And that's for a variety of reasons because we have a large Russian Jewish community here in Israel who are comprised, we use the word Russian Jew, but it's actually Jews from the former Soviet Union, which means we have Jews from the Ukraine and from Russia. Um, and if Bennett is able to interact with both of them, however the interaction is done, then I think it's exactly the right thing to do. And the, 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 was he played by, by Putin? Who knows? But the mere fact that, that there he was on the Sabbath meeting with Putin um, was for Israelis an extraordinary moment. Full stop. Those who are, who are supporters of the former Prime Minister Netanyahu, of course, are, are doing their usual catcalls, as is to be predicted. But the truth of the matter is, today is already Wednesday evening here, and he went on Saturday evening and the last three days, and after the initial yelling and screaming, in the last two or three days, Netanyahu's supporters um, have gone radio silent, which is, from my perspective, a um, wonderful development, and I wish them much more silence. What is the mood of the general populace in Israel about this? Very pro, very pro Ukrainian. For instance, we live in a, a little town, um, and um, so it's not a city hall, but it's like a village, like akin to a city hall, but it's not. Uh, the Ukrainian flag flies uh, flies there. Um, there have been demonstrations in Tel Aviv. Um, donations are being moved. 
donations are being made to Ukrainians who are coming here. And that's also an extraordinary story that I won't bore you with an endless little conversation about who has the right to move to Israel. It's a long, long conversation about the right of return, which is for Jews only. But in the last two days, the government has made a decision to allow both or to welcome um, Ukrainians, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. And uh, there are donations, clothes, money. There, there are refugees here. There are children here. And it's very interesting from a historical perspective. Truth be told, the Ukrainians in the Holocaust were the worst of the worst. And it's as if we've made a, um, a decision by silence as a population for the sake of the moment to let bygones be bygones. Um, I don't think we forget what the Ukrainians did uh, in the Holocaust. They're horrible. Um, but at the moment, that's seemingly not important. And I think it's not important because what seems to be affecting the Israeli government and the public or the public enforced the government is the pictures of, of, of um, refugees, particularly children. For us as Jews, the picture of, of children as refugees is obviously takes us back to the Holocaust. The government initially fumbled this. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I think in the last couple of days, they've uh, sought to um, undo the fumble or um, erase the fumble or minimize the fumble. Um, and that's why the announcement was made yesterday or today that I, for now um, 5,000 Gentile Ukrainians will be welcomed to Israel. It's extraordinary. Well, the United Nations is saying more than 2 million refugees coming out of Ukraine, an estimated half of which are children, to your point that you're talking about. And I think that's what is gripping the world. And I'm wondering what your read is on uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin yeah, responding I think to that, that. That's an excellent question. First of all, really brave people, in addition to the brave Ukrainians, are the brave Russians who are taking to the street in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They know what fate awaits them. They know this, and they're very open about this. We've seen reports that Russian demonstrators are saying, we know that this will be painful. I mean, it is painful because the way they're, the way they're arrested and then the way they're interrogated, but they've decided to take to the street. That's point one. Point two, I was told this morning um, that a Russian woman went shopping last week with X rubles and was able to buy enough chicken for, for dinner. She took that same amount of rubles yesterday or the day before, and that probably bought her like, you know, maybe a loaf of bread. I mean, and at some point, the, the public is going to say, wait a minute, I had X rubles, I bought chicken, and now I have the exact same rubles and I can buy bread. And Will that lead the, the, the Russian population, not all of it, of course, um, to say, wait, what's happening here? That's the kind of test that a Russian leader, and I think, frankly, also a Soviet leader, and Putin is very much steeped in, in Soviet ideology. Um, they've never faced this before. And, and trying to curtail the amount of information that flows in Russia, well, the ruble the pocketbook literally is going to put the lie to all of that information. So it's interesting on TV here on Tuesday or Monday, we saw a, we were, we saw her face, a Russian media activist uh, who allowed her face to be seen on TV. Uh, you know, in the old days, we know what fate awaited her. Um, but the power of social media, I don't know if, if Putin has any real understanding of how things go viral. And even if you, you know, you, you quash regular media and you have state-run media, you know, Pravda and Tas, it may well be that, the, that social media is, is, a, is something that a regime like Russia has never confronted before that may truly test them. I think that's one of the really interesting things to um, watch moving forward. Another analysis I've been watching over the last couple of days is what is the off-ramp for, for Putin? You know, you would think you would look at this and go, how do we bring this to an end? Um, but it feels like there's just a push more, push further, push harder, so more brutality. The, I think one of, the, one of the questions about Putin is what does he actually know in terms of what's happening and who's he, who actually does he talk to? Um, I... I think that's an open question. 
um, as we, as according to media reports, he engages with a very, 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 very limited number of people on a daily basis. According to various reports, he does not use the internet. So I don't know what he knows. Um, and I think based if you, you know, if you take a jigsaw puzzle, build a jigsaw puzzle of the various reports on, and of course, some interested parties, obviously, with their own spin. But it seems to be that that the, the pace of the, the conquering, um, or from his perspective, the freeing of Ukraine is not happening at the pace that he, I assume, A, expected, and B, was promised that would occur. It's also interesting to know that in the last few days, a number of Russian generals have been killed. And in Ukraine. there I saw interesting analysis by, by military commentators that the reason that's happening is that the generals are literally, I don't know if I would say in the front line or close to the front line, more than usual in the Russian military. And perhaps that's a sign that things are not going exactly as predicted. But I would be really careful with that one. Yeah. What is it that you're watching, especially as you prepare to travel back after your spring break? To Well, first of all, this is all that we have in the Israeli media. This is, I mean, we're, this is, this is, what we are all watching, because that's really the only thing. Because don't forget, there um, there were our eight thousand Israelis who live in the Ukraine. There's a Jewish population in the Ukraine. There's a Jewish population in Russia. Um, I think what you got at, which is what's the end game here? And I don't think, as far as one can discern, um, I I um, from my perch here don't see an end game. There's clear clearly. President Biden's decision with respect to um, oil gas that hits the Russians where it hurts. So does McDonald's decision, as I understand Starbucks also, and um, Coca-Cola. That's impactful. All pulling out of Russia. Yes, exactly right. And we'll have to see how that plays itself out. Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. He's also the author of The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. Check tonight's show notes for a link. When we come back, Nick Burns with the author of The Serpent Papers. To get us there, it's the Serotones Good Day on KRCL 90.9. Good day, good day, good day. KRCL's annual record and CD sale will be making its triumphant return in 2022. We're planning something special, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, we'll be taking donations of your gently used, tremendously loved, but slightly neglected records and CDs. If you can let go, we can make sure those treasures get their way to the next music lover in line. Donations are tax deductible and will help power your community radio station, 90.9 FM, KRCL. If you'd like to donate, reach out to me, Eric P. Nelson, at recordsale at krcl.org for details. See you soon. As many as 2 million people have been displaced in Ukraine. The Utah Ukrainian Association has a list of ways you can help. Find them on Facebook under the handle Love Ukrainians or the Connect page of krcl.org. This is Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! On the show tonight, of course, recorded earlier today, Tariq Ali on Ukraine, NATO expansion, and how Putin's invasion galvanized a Russian peace movement. At 8 o'clock, Liz Schulte in her new time slot with rude awakening two hours of punk and ska, followed by maximum distortion with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30. And then your brand new day with John Florence starts at 6 a.m. You can listen to the last two weeks of any show on demand online at krcl.org. Just click the Programs tab and search for your favorite show and line up the date. And now the rest of Radioactive is guided by community co-host Nick Burns in conversation with author Jeff Schneider. His new book, The Serpent Papers, published this month in advance of the 50th anniversary of the Columbia University Vietnam War protests. Next up on Radioactive, I want to welcome Dr. Jeff Schneider, who graduated from Columbia College in 1975. He retired a full professor from Eastern Virginia Medical College. While at Columbia, Dr. Schneider was involved in some of the most violent anti-war protests, including the infamous April 1972 protest in front of Hamilton Hall, where a thousand students uh, at a peaceful protest were beaten by New York City police. Um, 
And Dr. Schneider, you've published prize-winning short fictions, but now The Serpent Papers is your first novel. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, I I, want to just jump in here. Uh, Jeff, if I may call you Jeff, you've written this novel, The Serpent Papers. It's about JB, his freshman year at Columbia, at the height, as I mentioned, of the most violent of the anti-war protests. You've written this novel in first person. Uh, JB's from a conservative military family. His dad is a lifer, an, an admiral in the Navy. But JB doesn't quite fit his dad's view of what a kid should be. He ends up at Columbia, the same as your characters. So to jump in here, I just want to compliment you that you're writing about the dorm parties, about smoking hash, about hanging out at seedy bars, uh, reading philosophy in the library, integrating into college life as a kid full of curiosity and experimentation. Man, it reads well. Um, I'm impressed. I was really <clears throat> impressed by how you captured college life at that point in time. Well, thank you very much. Um, it In our generation, I think, um, and I was in college at the time of the Vietnam War and also in high school, the war was the defining event of our lives, and it created a generational rift between those who fought and those who protested. And the novel really is aimed at healing our generation with some kind of rapprochement over this rift. Um, And actually, further recent protests across the nation make the topic of contemporary interest and so forth. So um, my depiction of the era in the first person was to make it seem extremely real. My model for writing, or my the person I'm emulating or try to emulate, I should say, is George Orwell, who was a journalist mm-hmm. and who wrote fiction in a very journalistic, um, matter of fact, realistic fashion. I wanted to give a real feel to the times. I wanted to do that with place, which you mentioned, and with the characters and what they were doing, because I want the reader to feel as if he, she is there with me. And my, my philosophy about a book is that if the, if the author is doing it right, the reader is in a dream and the, the, it's all in your mind when you read a book. So it is a dream. You can see it, you can feel it, you can sense it. It's a dream. And the, the job of the author is to keep the reader in the dream And if the author does anything in the prose or in the writing that jars the reader out of that dream, that's bad. Yeah. So the, the, it has to be real for me. It should be flowing and it should keep you in that dream. So you can absorb it maximally. Well, I mean, the joke is always, if you can remember it, you weren't really there. So you're, you're doing something a little bit different, but uh, much of this book, and I want to get into JB and his friends and, and his girlfriend and on and on, but much of the book reads sort of like JB is confessing, you know, he's convicted, he's done some violent stuff as a kid uh, before attending college. Um, And it seems to me there's kind of a guilt that he's maybe expressing and telling us his story. Is that kind of how you see him? Well, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not JB. I'm not an Irish Catholic American. I'm not even Catholic. Um, but I grew up in a Catholic and Irish Catholic neighborhood. And I have a lot of Catholic friends. And there is a, a problem with guilt uh, and feeling guilt if one is a Catholic. And JB feels this guilt, but also... There, there's, there are moral underpinnings to the book, which have to do with how men, at least in this book, and there are some female figures too, how they deal with violence and how they digest that violence. And what is the mor- how do you handle it in a moral fashion? How do you come to grips with it in your life? Uh, of course, JB has extreme examples of violence in his life. Yeah. And that that makes it more um, palpable, more edgy for the reader. But the real question is, how do we handle violence? How do we look upon it? Is it real to us enough to be able to come to a decision on how to handle it? There are Catholic messages in the book. Um, There are messages about good and evil, which side of the coin you should stand on in terms of violence and peace, war and peace. Uh, Do you protest? Do you not? 
so you're you're spot on to to find that in the book. Yeah, it's it's very intriguing to me. And again, you and I are of a similar generation and a relatively similar age. But these days, when pop culture sort of looks at the hippie culture back then, we don't often see the notion of an angry hippie character. And that's something in the book as JB's hair grows longer, he gets more and more involved in the counterculture, Um, but he's kind of an angry guy. And I was very intrigued by your ability to create an angry hippie. Um, It's something new, I think, in an an odd way. It it hasn't been realized as much in pop culture as it should have been. Because in truth, our generation was very angry about a lot of things. And it came out in our protests. So first of all, there really is no denying that anger was part of us. In fact, the rift that the Vietnam War caused was was typified by this anger. And the two sides, which were sort of in a tussle over this war, were those pro-war and those who fought the war versus sort of those who protesting against the war. And there was a deep enmity between these two groups. Um, There was a resentment. And there was an anger mm-hmm. and there was an intolerance. With the anger comes an intolerance. And of course, you see a, a lot of those issues today. And they've always been there, but they're even, they're sort of peaking today like they were peaking at that time. There was a subset of hippies um, that, hippies sort of came about in the, in the hate Ashbury era in the late 60s and so forth. And they carried into the early 70s when people began to be called hippie freaks. And the hippie freaks were a little more of, had a little more of an edge on them. They were a little more aggressive about being hippie-ish. They Mm -hmm. were a little more pointed about their political views. It was sort of an evolution and a trend. And in any case, there was anger. And you're right. um, This is an angry boy who may have fit into the hippie world in some ways, but also it shows that kind of a character. Yeah. I, that was intriguing to me. And again, it it took your book somewhere a little bit new compared to a lot of books, I think, that sort of dip into the hippie culture, perhaps in a more superficial way. There's also Margot, his love interest. And I'm so fascinated and I had to chuckle, you know, he, JB sees Margot is so old because she's a senior and she actually went to Woodstock and here he is a freshman, you know, Um And while JB, you know, to me does demonstrate some of the sexism of the hippie years, and in some ways Margot is kind of a mother character, she's also very much kind of a teacher, and she is very enlightened. And I want to ask, even though your book doesn't really get into the second wave of feminism, you know, Margot's pretty enlightened, I think, for early 1970s. Well, um, Colombia is an interesting place because it breeds all kind of, shall we say, prescient people, people who are uh, realizing things are on the crest of the wave or just before the crest of the wave. Uh, I did meet a lot of people, types who were sort of precocious in the way Margot is. Um, I did have conversations with people similar to Margot Mm -hmm. and they were there. Uh, They weren't writing books about it. You know, not everybody writes books about it or puts it in a, in a journal column or in the newspaper, but these were people who were talking it and they were there at Columbia at that time. So she, it it was early times for feminism, but she was unquestionably uh, on in the vanguard. So I wonder in, in the book, in your mind, as, as someone, as the writer who created Margot, I want to ask, where do you think she ended up years later? Well, that's a mystery, but her ambition was to become a lawyer and work work yeah. cases like William Kunstler, who defended so many of the um, icons of the hippie generation of the early 70s and late 60s. Yeah. So that was her ambition. And she does get into, well, I don't want to give away the book too much. Although no, don't probably, give away the book. <laughs> I should probably talk about the book a little bit. Is, can I digress a little and talk a little bit about what happens in the book? Yeah, sure. Please don't give it away because I want people to read it. And then I also would like you to read a little excerpt if you have a spot. But yeah, jump into it, please. Well, you know, it is a historical novel and it's about the sit-ins, marches, protests and riots that occurred during the president's escalation of the Vietnam War in 1971 to 72. Um, 
It's the story of JB, as you've mentioned. He's raised in a violent world in the 60s. He chooses to matriculate at Columbia University instead of joining the military or going to Annapolis to the Naval Academy as his father would expect. And he's from this conservative Catholic military family. Um, he arrives at Columbia and he's thrust into an anti-war atmosphere. He becomes ideologically trapped between supporting his best friend, who, by the way, goes to Vietnam and is fighting overseas. So his friend chooses the path that he, was, he himself was supposed to choose. So he's trapped between supporting the ideology of his friend in Vietnam, and, he, as a, and then he's dumped into the cauldron of Colombia's anti-war culture and protest. And what happens is he, he has a moral quandary over, the, over his, con, uh, in his conscience over which side to fall on, which side to take with. He sort of straddles both sides. And what happens, uh, uh, there's a progressive tension of protest in the book there are bullhorns blaring, there's a riot on campus, and JB, the main character, is forced to make a decision that will define his life henceforth. So that's what the book is about. And when Bill Gilly comes back to campus on furlough, uh, that's a moment uh, that crystallizes things for JB and results in some, uh, some, some true, some true um, shall we say, upheaval, violence. It's really shocking when Gilly comes to visit him on campus. I mean, you'd expect the normal let's go out drinking and whatnot. And I don't want to give the book away, but what happens? I was really kind of shocked, but yet it fit. But it was like, holy crap. <laughs> well, he's a soldier and he's come back fresh from Vietnam where he's been killing people. So, yeah, um, he, um, you know, for him, he's transplanted in place, but still his mind is is the same as it was in Vietnam. And it shows you, gives you a window into the minds of veterans who come back fresh from war and the traumas that they suffer. And Gilly is, has been a victim of those things. And uh, I, when I was a physician for 22 years in the VA hospital system, I saw that repeatedly, the nightmares that veterans have, the problems they have coping with coming back to normal civilized society and how we do not really really relate to the experiences they've had and the problems that they encounter once they try to come back and be normal, quote unquote, again, very difficult. Yeah. Do you have an excerpt, a little moment that you'd like to read? So I, I can read at the end of chapter one question, and this is JB who's narrating the book, questions hanging over my future stoked the fires of my agitation until finally, in the end, I decided to head to modern day Babylon, fun city, Gotham, Pleasure Island, where I would study civilization at the jaded but greatest repository of knowledge in the Western world. It was 1971 and I was going to hell on earth as the sisters of St. Eustace would say, Columbia University, hotbed of radicalism, den of iniquity, home of left-wing bomb-throwing Jew boys, stomping ground of Black Panthers and commie pinko organizers. I would walk the ivied quads at the hub of the weather underground, but whether to strike the stone of the liberal hippie world with the conservative hammer of my fathers or to shatter my soul and shake my genealogical tree by joining the forces of as yet unknown long-haired brothers was unclear to me. A battle was brewing inside me. I was an angry boy, a lost boy, and I would seek redemption or fall into a fissure and tumble into Tartarus like the dead in a painting by Hieronymus Bosch, rising from the earth on judgment day to be flagellated by demons and roasted in hellfire for the whole remainder of God's eternity and for the rest of my waking life. The book is The Serpent Papers. The author is Dr. Jeff Schneider. Thank you for that. This is Radioactive, your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL. And Jeff, a couple minutes left. Here we are, and you alluded to this. You had a long career helping veterans from Vietnam. We have an ongoing problem now with vets back from multiple wars in multiple countries in the Middle East. We're now in the middle of um, an invasion of Iraq. And when I think of 50 years ago in the protests that JB was involved in, 
and again, 50th anniversary next month, I might point out, a lot of the protests against the Vietnam War were directed at corporations who were behind the war effort. I remember protests at computer science buildings because of connections to IBM and other transnational corporations. And I wonder now, as folks like us look back 50 years, I don't see that at all anymore. I don't see any protest against the military industrial complex or the massive resources towards war. What I see is much more like, we need to go do this, let's just pay for it. And that kind of bothers me. Um, and I wonder if uh, that's something you've thought about writing about. Well, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I said Iraq, I mean the invasion of Ukraine, I'm thinking of the soldiers back. Of course, Iraq, but yes, of course. I'm sorry, but yeah, no, no. go ahead. That 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 aspect of the protest, the looking at the military-industrial complex, seems completely gone. Well, I am not so much of an expert on that. I can tell you that at the time, as you say, at Columbia, a lot of the protests were angry about the fact that professors at Columbia were getting grants from the from the United States government to study war technology and help the government in its war effort to mine the Ho Chi Minh Trail in non-combatant nations, Cambodia and Laos ended Vietnam. And the, the students were very, the Columbia community was very upset about that, uh, that the university itself should be complicit in, complicit in the war effort. Uh, it's, um, that may not translate it to what's happening today in terms of what people are upset about. Yeah. Uh, but what does translate is the fact that people have come home from Afghanistan defeated. Uh, the fall of Afghanistan was so uh, sudden, unexpected. Uh, and in a way, it echoes the spooky nature of how uh, Vietnam ended. And I have this image of a helicopter falling off a roof in Saigon at the, at the U.S. Embassy. Um, it, it does have sort of this eerie echo to that period. Uh, and that was brought up by someone who reviewed my book, I think at NPR, Joan Baum. Hmm. Uh, and I do see that there is a parallel there. Um, there is also an atmosphere of intolerance today uh, surrounding things that have nothing to do with war, like COVID. People are intolerant of each other's views over whether you should have a vaccine, whether you shouldn't have a vaccine, whether you we have the right to force people to have a vaccine or, or take away their jobs if they don't have a vaccine. You know, there's, it's, it's almost like the draft. The draft for the military says, we're going to take your body and use it the way we want. Here you have the government in a very unusual situation saying, we want you to use your body in such and such a fashion. It's a very unusual circumstance. And it has brought about the same bitterness between two sides who don't seem to be able to reconcile over some of these yeah. issues. Well said. A couple minutes left. Um, you were in that protest 50 years ago where the police surrounded students and beat you all bloody with batons and whatnot. Um, you went on to have a career in medicine, helping veterans. Thank you for that. Um, you went on to become a college professor yourself. But before I let you go, I just have to ask the, the title itself, The Serpent Papers. I was very intrigued by that in your book and the way that develops. And I wonder, historically, was that something that you encountered at Columbia, the way the serpent papers sort of play out for JB? Well, no, and I, I don't want to give away the meaning. No, of the, no, don't give away. But, but I do want to say something about the serpent. The serpent is an, he's an invisible voice, a voice that emerges from behind a screen in a basement cafe in the crypt of an on-campus chapel. In other words, under the chapel, there's this stone crypt. And that crypt does exist at Columbia under St. Paul's Chapel. And in fact, it was a coffee house at the time that Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac were reciting, and they would recite there as legend has it. So it was a place and the serpent would appear and would recite or say things uh, philosophically to a crowd of students in the cafe in the book. So the Serpent Papers is really uh, sort of a title that refers to this character yeah. And uh, to find out the full meaning of it and the secret behind the serpent, pap serpent papers, they have to do what you did. And that is, of course, <laughs> read the book. 
<laughs> oh, good marketing, Jeff. I appreciate that. But it, it's very intriguing because JB is so hungry and so curious and so filled with, you know, his actions aren't conflicted, but his thoughts sure are. And I was very intrigued that he is just so hungry for knowledge. It's really, as someone who works in higher education myself, it's just, it's what education should be. You should be out there hungry for knowledge and it's in the library. And it's like you say, in this crypt under a chapel. Um, I was just fascinated. What are you working on next real quickly? I'm writing a book about a playwright in the 16th century, that is the 1500s in Tudor, England. Um, and the book is also going to tackle one of my passions, the Serpent Papers, the idea of it and the Vietnam War has haunted me for 50 years, especially the conflict between these groups of people for and against. Likewise, I have been conflicted over the story of a playwright in Elizabethan England and, and I am passionate about it for the past 25 years. So I'm working on that to bring it to- Is that, uh, is that a playwright we would recognize or someone more obscure? I think probably you would recognize. Ah, very intriguing. Well, when that book is done, would you come <laughs> back and talk about it? Of course, of course I will. This is The Serpent Papers out now. Please support a local small independent bookstore. Get your copy of the book, also probably at the library. You can check tonight's show notes for a link to The Serpent Papers. And you can be, um, oh, I'm sorry. You can check tonight's show notes for a link to The Ser Serpent Papers by my guest this evening, Dr. Jeff Schneider. Jeff, thank you for taking time to talk. I enjoyed the book. It really it made me sad to go back 50 years, but it also made me kind of happy to go back 50 years. And I think that's a good book. Well, thank you very much. And I just want to say, mention my website is www.jschneiderauthor.com. If you'd like to read reviews, order the Serpent Papers through that website, although you can get it anywhere. Cool. Are you happy to be an author now and no longer a professor or at the VA? A big change, I think. Uh, medicine is a very difficult, it's very hard to, it's a very hard profession. It yeah. really is stressful. And um, I'm very happy to be doing something that's a bit lighter. And I love uh, it. <laughs> that's funny. I think higher education is a little stressful these days. But, but thank you. Thank you for taking time. The book is The Serpent Papers. We'll get your website in the show notes as well. Dr. Jeff Schneider, thank you very much for being on Radioactive. This was a fun read. The way you the way you jumped into the story with like a great big dorm party. It's like I was suddenly in Hillcrest Hall in Iowa City in 1972. It was just weird. So well done for that. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you. Radioactive community co-host Nick Burns and Dr. Jeff Schneider, author of The Serpent Papers. And do check the show notes for a link to the book and the Good Doctor's website. My thanks to Nick Burns and all of our guests this evening for being a part of Radioactive and helping to plug you into the community. Questions, comments, suggestions, send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. Got a few minutes left in the show. I'm going to leave you with something from Beck. Cell phones dead on KRCL 90.9. Have a great night, everybody.